So we're at question 27 in the Shorter Catechism, and it's about Christ's humiliation. Question 27, and our scripture reading will be from Philippians chapter 2. Over the past three weeks in our sermon series on the Shorter Catechism, we have been looking at the offices of Christ, and we have taken them one by one, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and office of king. Prior to that, we looked at all three of them together and how what an office is and how the office is fulfilled and conferred and all of those things and how God equips Christ to be able to fulfill those offices when he came in our flesh. We want to review what each of these offices involves by confessing the answers to the catechism questions. I hope that you're doing well with uh, memorizing the catechism as we go along. It's very helpful to have these things in our heart. So, Question 24, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. In question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And today we come to question 27, and it deals with the humiliation of Christ. Now, next week we'll be, Lord willing, looking at the exaltation of Christ. So these go together. Humiliation is him humbling himself when he came down from heaven to be among us and did all the things that he did, going to the cross and so on. And his exaltation is when he goes back up um, to his uh, place of glory. So let's, let's confess question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Now, this question actually takes us back to question 23, where we were first introduced to the work of Christ as our Redeemer. So let's confess that one together as well. Question 23, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ is our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So as I said, his humiliation essentially refers to his leaving the glory of heaven to die on the cross for us, and his exaltation has to do with his rising out of that humiliation until his kingdom is fully established and his enemies are conquered and reigning until 
his enemies are conquered and his kingdom is fully established. His offices of prophet, priest, and king are entwined in both his humiliation and exaltation. And I hope you, um, you have been able to see that as we've gone along. As our prophet, for example, in his humiliation, he came to earth in our flesh as the living word. But now as prophet in his exaltation, he sends out preachers by his authority and he sends the Holy Spirit with them to actually bring the word to our hearts. So there's something that he does as the son of God exalted in glory. And there's also something that he does coming down to us and living among us. And the only way that he could do the off, fulfill the office and all that's required of him in it. And then the priest, similar thing in his humiliation. He came to earth and suffered for us on the cross and died for us. In his exaltation, he was raised from death, showing that his sacrifice was accepted. And he now prays for us at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us an act of authority that he exercises from his place at the right hand. And then as our king, he came to represent us living a godly life that is required of all of his subjects. And he took on death by dying for us. And in his exaltation, he, by his authority, makes us willing and obedient servants by the Holy Spirit. And he judges and will judge and destroy all his and our enemies. That's something that only the one who is exalted can do. So today we're going to look at his humiliation in particular. And our scripture reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Please give your attention as I read this to you because it is the holy word of God. Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." May the Lord add his blessing to us through the reading and ministry of his word. As we look at this passage, I want to begin by warning you not to confuse something that Christians sometimes confuse. Be sure that you understand that Christ's obedience to the Father is not his humiliation. God the Son is eternally submissive and obedient to God the Father. 
long before he became flesh and dwelt among us, even before the world was created, God the Son was submissive to the Father. In John 8, 29, he himself says, I always do those things that please him. Now, it might be thought that that was something that he only began to do when he became flesh. But in John 5, he makes it clear that he is not just talking about his obedience on earth, but in eternity. In 5.19, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. And whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. God the Holy Spirit is submissive to God the Son and God the Father from all eternity. In John 14 through 16, the chapters 14 through 16, Jesus speaks about both he and the Father sending the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Father, you don't have the Spirit sending the Father, but you have the Father sending the Spirit. You have Jesus sending the Spirit. You do have the Spirit sending Jesus when he's here in the flesh. But in the uh, eternal side of, uh, with the Trinity, then you have, uh, there's an an economic order there. It is not any kind of inferiority in substance or essence. Uh, The fancy word, it's not an ontological subordination of any kind. It's uh, the economic, or that word means a household arrangement. It corresponds to submission that we have in human society. But it's in a very sublime way. And this is where it becomes difficult for us because we cannot fathom, we can't even fathom the Trinity fully. But it is revealed to us that there is some kind of the... the, um, the sun, is our creeds say, is light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, equal in power and glory. But he's light of light, God of God. It's not the other way around with the Father being God of God. No, he, the Son is God of God and light of light. And that kind of a, a, a arrangement is, is there. There's a sense of, of sunness that he always has. And so these are things, again, they're, they're sublime things, and we can't, we can't fully fathom or understand them, but there's a revealing to us that he is a son in order that we might even learn ourselves how from, from the uh, divine one. We're made in his image. So understand that the son's obedience did not begin when he became flesh. Rather, that obedience was there all along as the son of God. This is clear from the fact that one of the primary things that he obeyed that we know about is obeying to come in the flesh. He wasn't already in the flesh, but he obeyed the father to to come here. The father told him to do this and he did this. God the Son's obedience to the Father is not humiliation in any way. And that's why I'm saying as we look at humiliation, we don't want to confuse that it is. Now we're going to see a way that it is, his submission to the law as a man. But obedience itself is not. In fact, God the Son finds his glory in submitting to God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit finds his glory in submitting to the Father and the Son. 
This is how the divine household functions in beautiful, perfect unity and how the three persons have functioned from all eternity. It's only in our rebellion as fallen creatures that we think that subordination, submission, obedience to authority is humiliation. And in this fallen world, it often is humiliation because of the nature of those that are over us in authority. We don't want anyone, though, telling us what to do because those who tell us what to do in this world are very often not looking out for our best interests in any way whatsoever. This is not at all the way it is in the divine household. The love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is seen in the way that they treat each other in, in, in economic relationship. Now, when we even say each other, we know that there are three distinct persons. But again, there's, a, there's something that is beyond our understanding with the unity of the three persons, and yet this diversity. There's a deep love, appreciation, and delight one to another. And above all things, the generosity of the Father is seen in that it says that He gives all things to the Son. We don't think of our leaders in this way, so we see any kind of obedience as some kind of humiliation. But it's not that way with the Son of God. There's another reason we don't like any kind of submission or subordination, because we're rebellious by nature. We don't want to be tied to anyone else like that. The fall has warped us to such an extent that that we think that we'll be ruined if we even submit to our Creator. And it's just the opposite. That's how we live. We're made to, to, to give ourselves to Him. It's an attitude that Satan introduced to us at the fall, and it's still very strong in us. We think that freedom means living however I please and without regard to what even God would say about it. There's an idea that obeying then itself is humiliation. We have this picture of being under a tyrant instead of a picture of living under someone who loves us and who knows more than we do and who facilitates beautiful living as we submit to him and obey him and who who does wonderful things, who has wonderful projects and desires and delights and who who brings us into those as we as we serve him it's the kind of thing where if you're um if, if you're on a ball team and you have a really a really excellent coach and he gives wonderful counsel and advice to everything that you do on the field and you you want that instruction you look for that because it helps you to to play the game to at your best and that's something like what we're what we're talking about here there's something beautiful so anyway the obedience of the son is not humiliation then what is his humiliation well it's his doing the things that are described in the catechism and in philippians 2 here in his being born and that in a low condition that's humiliation for him made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life the wrath of god and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. I hope you see the distinction that I'm making. The Father commanded Christ to undergo this humiliation and he obeyed. The particular command was a command for the Son to humble himself by going to the cross, by living obedience to the Father. But living in obedience to the Father is not itself humiliating for him in any way. 
The Son eternally finds delight in obeying the Father. It is His glory to obey Him, just as it is or should be our glory to obey Him. And as creatures, of course, we obey Him as creature to God. And He did that too in His humiliation because He became a man. And so then that was humiliation for Him to be obeying as a creature, but yet it's not humiliation in itself for a creature that ought to obey God to obey and submit to God. It is rather our highest place of honor and glory and dignity. And we need to understand that. It's very hard to get that into us because the, the fall is just deep within our bones. It's just soaked into us so, so fully, the rebellion and, the, and the, the turning away from not wanting to, do, um, to submit to God. Well, now let's move on to look at each stage of Christ's humiliation that's laid out for us. His humiliation began with being born. Now, for us as creatures, being born is a very glorious thing. You know, a child, life is brought into the world. At conception, we're brought from non-existence to existence as a, as a creature it's a marvelous exaltation to, to not be and then to be. That's exaltation. You're, you're brought from nothing into being. And uh, we're presented to the world as a whole new eternal being. I remember when my first child was born and I, I felt like that this could have never happened like this anywhere in the world before. It was so special and so unique. And, and it, it is. It truly is. In Psalm 139.14, we exclaim, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. For us, birth is glorious. But for Christ, it was a great humiliation. Because he was the Son of God. He did not begin to exist when he was born. But he began, rather, to exist in a much lower form when he was born. This is brought out in Philippians 2, 5 and 7 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. When it says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, it means that in making that claim that he was equal with God, it took nothing away from God, from God's glory. Now, it would take a lot away from God if we said we were equal to God, because we're not. It would be blasphemy for us to say that. In other words, he was fully and truly equal with God. He was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The words made himself of no reputation translate the word kenosis in the original, which means to empty. This does not mean that he ever emptied himself of his divine glory, of his divine nature, I should say, so as not to have it anymore. Because it's impossible. The divine nature cannot change. It cannot cease to be all that it is. That would be a, to, to deny the divinity, to deny the godness of him. But it means, as our translators have put it, that he made himself of no reputation. This is really an over-translation of the word. 
but it's a translation that explains accurately what he emptied himself of. Like when he emptied himself, okay? What did he empty himself? They, they've, they've gone beyond emptying oneself to empty himself, became of, of, of no reputation. He emptied himself of his reputation. He allowed himself to actually acquire an inferior state to his own state. A human nature as opposed to a divine nature. Again, not ceasing the divine nature, but now also having this very, very inferior nature. That's humiliation. Presenting himself in this inferior nature as, as one of us. Interacting with us in this inferior state. Something like a king that decides to dress as a pauper and to walk around with the common people, putting aside his honors and his reputation and you know, letting people uh, yell at him for getting in their pathway or, or whatever, things that you would never do to a king in his royal dignity and his robes. Um, because we're dull when it comes to seeing the glory of God, we can hardly even begin to grasp what a great lowering of himself it was for God the Son to become a man. If we were to become worms and allow ourselves to be treated like another worm uh, in the world, the humiliation would not be as great as going from creature to creator, a self-existing one to one who now is part of the creation. It's, it's phenomenal. With, with God the Son, we have the self-existing creator of all things coming part of his creation. Thomas Watson said, Behold here a sacred riddle or paradox. God manifest in the flesh. That man should be made in God's image was a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders from the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck at the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which he himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bare, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God, but one with God. This was not only a miram, a wonder, but a miraculum, a miracle. Now, it was, of course, necessary for Christ to come in the flesh if he was going to be our Redeemer. Because as our prophet, that he might be the living word of God. I reviewed that with you a little bit before. How could he be the living word of God who actually lives the law, who actually lives out the sufferings of the gospel that were required of of us? He had to be one of us. And as a priest, he had to represent us to God when he offered himself for us. He had to humble himself and be of us. As a king, that he might lead us before God with a true heart for God as a human, then he might be anointed with the Spirit so that he'd live by the strengthening of the Spirit in his human flesh, that he might give the Spirit to us and uh, make us cheerfully submissive to God. We have looked at all three of these in the previous sermons, so I'm not going to go into details now, but the point is that it was an integral part of God's plan of redemption for the Son to become flesh. He couldn't have redeemed us if he hadn't. So being born was the first stage of his humiliation. Now let's look at the second. 
Secondly, he came in a low condition. One might expect that if the Son of God was to be born in the world, that he would be born in a palace with great riches to a mighty king and queen, that he would live in pomp and luxury all his days and have all the honor that belongs to royalty. But instead, we're told that he was born to a lowly carpenter. Actually, of course, the betrothed of a lowly carpenter and was from a backwater place that was called Nazareth that no one had any regard for. We know that they were poor because they offer the sacrifice for Mary's purification after he is born of a pair of birds, Luke 2, 22 through 24, which was permitted for those who could not afford a lamb, as Leviticus 12, 8 tells us. It was the offering of the poor. Luke 2, in Luke 2, 7, we're told of the crude place that he was born. It says of Mary, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. He was born in a cave with animals, with all the smells and the flies. Not always the way it's depicted to us. A stable is a smelly place. If you've ever been in a barn, you know what it's like. His mother had no midwife to attend her, as the Israelites had even when they were slaves in Egypt. And the only visitors they had were lowly shepherds who were some of the most despised people that weren't even allowed to test or whose testimony didn't even stand up in a court as a witness. They were the ones that happened to be awake. Clearly, as Jesus told Pontius Pilate, his kingdom was not of this world. Let us then learn from this not to expect special treatment as his followers The twelve were often guilty of doing this. We've seen that as we've gone through Mark. And Matthew 10, 24 through 25, Jesus reminds them, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? He reminded one man who wanted to follow him, that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If he became poor for us that we might inherit heaven, should we complain if we're deprived of things in this world in our following of him? And look at us. We hardly lose a thing in these times for being his followers. I mean, you know, really, maybe a little bit of respect, maybe a promotion or something, but we don't lose much. For being his followers. What a disgrace it is to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner, to see God humbling himself and to see man exalting himself. We should be willing to lose all for him. And indeed, I think that we may be asked to do a lot more soon. When we look at the way that our society is going, then there may be many things that we have to be deprived of in our service to Christ. We need to be ready for that. Like I was preaching about um, last week and a little bit this week in the morning, that uh, we have to be ready to suffer and be strong in our walk with God so that, so that we're willing to do that when we're called to do so. It's very, very likely that harder times will come.
Third, we see his humiliation in that he was made under the law. By coming as a man, he, of course, was under God's moral law, as all men are. Because if you're, if you're a human being, you, you're under the moral law, period. Scripture spells this out for us. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Philippians 2.7 brings this out when it says, He took on the form of a bondservant. The word doulos, bondservant, translated bondservant here, means a slave in the very strongest sense of belonging to another where you don't have your own will. The suggestion is that just by becoming a man, he became a bondservant of God, a doulos, in the way that men are bondservants, all men are bondservants to God. By nature, we are properly bondservants from creation. We were made entirely for God, entirely to do His will. But don't forget what I already showed you earlier. This does not mean that God intended to grind us or beat us down. In fact, it is our dignity to be the servants of God. It's a very glorious thing. If you are a servant to a great king, then you would hold your head high and boast about that. Well, we are servants to the God of heaven, all human beings. And the thing that is so wrong with us is that we don't recognize how special that is. When we're saved, we become bondservants to God all over again. We become what we were created to be in the first place. Paul gladly referred to himself over and over again as a bondservant of Christ. A slave in the fullest sense. As human beings, we are either bondservants of God or we are bondservants of Satan. There's no middle ground. It was our glory to be God's slaves, our shame to be Satan's. But for the Son of God, it was a great humiliation for Him to be subject to the law that was made for His creatures. Now again, not to obey as Son, as God the Son and God the Father, but to be made a human and to have to obey as a creature to the Creator, that is the position that He came into when He became flesh. Properly, God does not belong under the law that He made for us. He is under no more obligation to keep it than you are to keep rules that you make for your dog. You know, don't, don't, don't jump on the couch or something like that. You that's, you don't say, well, well, I told my dog that, so I have to have the same law. It's, no, you're, it's not your law, it's, it's their law. Um, or or not, to, um, not to eat at the table. You, know, you might not want your dog like, up on the table uh, eating, eating with you. Um, or, or to sit down and shut up when the guests come over. You know, those things are, you, you are proper for uh, a dog, but they're not for, for the dog's master. The moral law reflects much about what God is. For example, God does not lie, and so he forbids lying to us. So there's a lot of ways that, that God does do what he, he, he tells us to do, and he doesn't do what he tells us not to do in that way. But many of his laws that he made for us do not apply to him at all as God. For example, God who gave life may also take it away. For us, it's murder, unless he's authorized it, and then he's actually the one doing it. Our society is embracing things like assisted suicide and abortion 
because we want to be in the place of God and to decide who should live and who should die. But it's not our place to do that. Similar things can be said of stealing. God who owns all things, he can take stuff away from one, give it to another. It's not stealing. But for us, it is if I take things that don't belong to me from another person. So how inappropriate it is for you, a creature, to consider yourself to be above the law when the Son of God came under that law that was not even properly made for him. The law beautifully suited for us as creatures was not suited for the one who was creator. So you see that Jesus was humble because he came under the moral law. That was when he was made as a man. But there is a second way he was humbled in coming under the law that was even a greater humiliation. What was that law he came under? Not only did he come under the law that was made for man as creature, but he also came under the law that was made for man as sinful creature, as sinful human. He was made under the law of Moses, which presupposes sin. The law of Moses was made for man as sinner. It involved sacrifices for cleansing of sin. It included circumcision that declares that a man is a sinner who needs a new heart. Jesus could only participate in these rites by identification with us in our sins since he was not a sinner. He needed no sacrifice for himself. He needed no cleansing, no circumcision, no baptism for that matter. But he undertook those. We, we needed all of these. And he placed himself in solidarity with us, taking place of a guilty sinner, another guilty sinner among us, as if he was one. How inappropriate it is then for you to refuse to confess your need of cleansing through baptism in the Lord's Supper when the Son of God, who had no sin, received the signs that God had appointed under the Old Covenant. Fourth, we see his humiliation in undergoing the miseries of this life. Jesus had a life of poverty and suffering. We have already seen that he was born in a poor family. Besides that, his family had to flee to Egypt when they learned that Herod was trying to kill him. And we see him suffering all kinds of things from fallen sinners that fallen sinners suffer. But as the son of God, he would never have had to suffer if he had not come to live in this fallen world as a fallen as if he was a fallen man among fallen men. We're told of his hunger in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 2. We're told of how patient he was to go without food. We're told of his weariness in John 4, 6, when he sits down to rest by the well. And on another occasion where he was so exhausted after preaching that he was asleep on the boat during the storm and his disciples were kind of upset with him. How, you know, sort of like Jonah, you know, what are you doing sleeping? <laughs> you know, get up. We're, we're going to perish. They knew that he was the one that could maybe do something about it. They found out surely he could. But uh, we see him experiencing sorrow and weeping in, in John eleven thirty five when he sees that his friend has died. We see him weeping with sorrow over Jerusalem's rejection of him. He was truly a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. 
None of this was fitting for him as the Son of God. These are all things that belong to fallen sinners, not to the Son of God. We deserve these afflictions and much more, but he does not deserve them. Think about how hard it is for you to suffer for something that, you know, you didn't do, something you don't deserve, like you get wrongly accused and have to suffer for it, get a fine or something. For example, you get a speeding ticket when you weren't speeding, even though there were a lot of times when you sped that no one, you didn't get caught, right? And then the one time you get one, and it's like, oh, you know, that's, it, we, don't, we don't like that. Peter admonishes us about this in 1 Peter 2.18. He says, servants, be submissive to your master's with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, when you're accused falsely. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus' suffering of these afflictions only really begins to scratch the surface of his humiliation when we consider the fifth aspect of his humiliation. What we've seen so far, it pales in comparison to what we're going to see now. The ultimate humiliation he experienced was that he bore the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. I am treating the wrath of God together with the cursed death of the cross because it was in particular on the cross that Jesus bore the wrath of God. Yes, he had a taste of the wrath of God in the miseries of this life that we just looked at. The common sufferings of this world are an expression of God's wrath against the whole human race in general. But on the cross, Jesus experienced God's wrath turned on him in particular, focused upon him and brought on him in full force. The Bible teaches that hanging on a tree is the place of one that is cursed by God. And this is exactly what it was for Jesus, according to Galatians 3.13, when it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was the ultimate humiliation for him. This is what Philippians 2.8 highlights as the ultimate of his humiliation. It says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It says even the death of the cross because this was the ultimate humiliation. You see on the cross, he suffered the rejection of the father on account of our sins, but it all fell on him personally. It came to him personally. He was dealt with as if he had committed our sins. The shame of them, the forsaking of God that results from them, were all things that were born 
by him. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? In Isaiah 53, we're told that he was cut off from the land of the living because of the transgressions of his people. And we're told that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Luther says that on the cross, he became the chief sinner. He actually stood as the one who had committed those sins before the Father. We cannot fathom what it was like for him to do that. He was a rebel and an apostate in the eyes of the Father whom he so dearly loved and whom he, in so many more ways than we do, always sought to please. It is impossible for us to understand how important it is, how important it was in his eyes to please the Father and how deeply it wounded him to be one who representing all of us who had not pleased the Father, who was cut off, his soul being cut off. But that is what he willingly underwent in obedience to the Father because of his great love for us. This is the ultimate example in Philippians of putting others ahead of yourself. We have a hard time slightly inconveniencing ourselves for others because we feel we don't deserve it. The Son of God went all the way to the cross for us. And he in no way deserved that. And finally, there is the humiliation of being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Think of it. The creator of heaven and earth was buried in the very ground that he had made. He made us out of the dust of the ground and we were created to have dominion over the dust, over the whole earth. Therefore, when we sinned, we were sentenced with something that never would have happened apart from sin, with death in which we lose that dominion and become dust all over again. Burial is the earth taking dominion over us again. Whether it be uh, burial or, or um, cremation or, or, or getting eaten up by a bunch of fish or something. Uh, we, we return to the dust. But with Jesus, we have the creator of the earth himself buried in the earth. This is unconscionable. And it would be entirely impossible had he not become flesh for us, that he who has life in himself should take our flesh and become lifeless is beyond comprehension. For three days, he who has life in himself was lifeless in the grave. Yes, as God, he was still very much alive. He was holding the world together. But having also taken the form of man, he truly died. The great principle of Scripture is that in our fallen nature or in our fallen world, life comes through death. Jesus had to die that we might live. He died so that all those that the Father gave him might live. And anyone who trusts in him will live. He calls you to die to what you are and to come to life in him, and to come to him for life. Mark 8:34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As I said, the principle is that in our fallen world, life comes through death. How thankful we should be for a Savior like this who is willing to bear such great humiliation for us in order that we might be saved. We were beyond rescue through our own efforts, but by coming from heaven, taking our flesh and bearing the curse for us, Jesus has secured eternal life. And you can know that this life is yours if you simply leave your own way and come to Christ and trust in him and what he has done to save his people from their sins. Please stand and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who left the glory of heaven and came to this earth. We praise you, O Lord, that he humbled himself and that he, became, he came in the form of a bondservant. And we praise you that not only did he do that, but he also became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Truly, if he had not done this, we would still be in our sins. Father, we do not, the horror of that is, is beyond our comprehension. Truly, we thank you and praise you that, that he bore the guilt and the shame of what we have done. Truly, he is the son of God. And yet, there he is, a man that is condemned before you. We thank you that he has fulfilled all that was required for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that through his humiliation, that we would see his glory. For it is a grand thing, Lord, that he has done this. It actually brings honor to him when we see the great love that he has, the great mercy that he has shown. And I pray, Lord, that that honor would be something that resonates in our heart as we contemplate him, as we speak of him to others. Thank you, Lord, for the great hope that we have that when we see him, we will be like him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to imitate him in our flesh, for we, it is ours properly, Lord, and that we would be those who obey and, and who serve the way that a human being ought to. For he did that the way a human being ought to, though he was the Son of God. Father, we praise you and thank you for all that you have done. Comfort us in these things. Refresh us in all of your fullness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.